We've been working on the four G's, as we've said several times, glorious, great, gracious, and good. We come up to the fourth of the four G's today, as stated in Psalm 116.5. I read Psalm, or, or a good portion of Psalm 145, and, and you heard all four of those if you were listening. God is good, God is glorious, He's gracious, He's great and powerful. Today we're going to look at uh, the gracious. Psalm 116.5 says it very plain and simply, gracious is the Lord and righteous our God is merciful. Now, if you have your Bibles with you today, I encourage you, we're going to get here eventually. This is what some people return, uh, refer to as a, uh, an airplane sermon or a, an airport sermon where, it, you know, you've got a long runway and then finally you take off at the end. Um, Ephesians chapter 1 and chapter 2 is where we're going to end up at uh, uh, in a little bit looking at God's grace um, but before we get there, let's just talk about this idea. Gracious is the Lord. We sang a song, Amazing Grace. There's probably not a truer song, a truer statement out there than this, that grace is amazing. Of all the characters of God, of God being good, of God being great, of God being glorious, I can kind of get my head wrapped around that a little bit. You know, great. He, he, he is powerful. He's in the number one position. You know, he's above all gods. I can get that. You know, he should be great. He can do whatever he wants to. He's shown his great power over and over. I, I can grab that. God is good. I think about all the good things I have and, and wonderfully is, okay, God is good. I, I get that. Glorious. He's to be feared. I mean, he's God after all. He's, he's above all things. He sits in heaven. I mean, what would we do but bow down to God and give him glory? Okay, I, I can somewhat grasp that. But grace, of all the things about God that stretches my mind to almost the breaking point, I think it's grace. This, this not deserving. You know, grace is getting what you don't deserve. Mercy is the other side of that coin. You know, the flip side of that. Mercy is, is not getting what you do deserve. Grace is getting what you, getting what you don't deserve. So those are both sides of the same kind of coin. But just this idea of unconditional love. I don't know that I've ever really experienced anywhere else other than from God. You know, even my closest relationships, if, I, if I'm really, really honest, there, there's a little bit of condition there sometimes. You know, when, when I do what pleases Shelly, she loves me or at least acts like she loves me. And when she does what pleases me, I, I still always love her. But, but my sentiment, that happiness, that joy is a little bit more when certain conditions are met. Although we may say we are unconditional, we still want people to do what we want them to do. And when they do what we want to do, our affectional feelings for them is increased a little bit. I mean, if we're really, really honest, I'm not talking about, you know, we're going to just, she burns the toast and well, that's it. We're divorcing or anything like that. But just, just when, when we act like we want to act or other people act like we want them to act, we feel a little better about them. But just to be, be able to mistreat God, which is by the way, sinning, cheating on God, and him still love us unconditionally as much as he did. That statement is there's nothing you can do to make God love you more. And there's nothing you can do to make God love you any less. I can't get my head wrapped around that kind of thought. That's amazing. And that's grace. Grace is amazing. Hey, look, we amazingly, we 
Got it. Thank you very much. But as amazing as grace is, I bet you've never heard the bad news about grace. There is some bad news when it comes to grace. And, I, and I'd like to talk about that just a little bit here to begin with. And it starts off with grace is not. It's really the bad news about grace is what it is not. And number one, grace is not permission giving. Because God is gracious doesn't mean he gives us permission to do whatever we want to do. It means he doesn't give us permission to sin. In the New Testament, grace was kind of a new recognition. God had always been gracious. And maybe not a new recognition. Maybe the better way to say it, it was a new concentration. That in the New Testament, the writers concentrate on grace more than they did in the Old Testament. He was still as gracious in the Old Testament as he was in the New Testament. And there's lots of verses in the Old Testament that talk about God's grace and how gracious he is. But they really started to concentrate on the idea of grace in, in the New Testament. Some of the Old Testament verses I'll, I'll just point out right fast. Is from Joel uh, chapter 2, verse 13. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious. Exodus 34, 6. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the, uh, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God. <coughs> and again, in Psalm 114, uh, 111, verse four, he has caused his wonders to be remembered. The Lord is gracious. And so God is as gracious in the Old Testament as he is in the New Testament. But the writers, the focus seems to change or at least concentrate more on grace and through this grace uh, through this uh, because in the old testament they focus a lot more it seems to be a lot more focused on religious duty you know keeping the law performing the right ritual doing the right sacrifice you know i.e be good do all the things you're supposed to do and that makes god happy but in the new testament the, the followers start to really focus on god's grace over personal performance that they didn't have to perform anymore personally they relied more on grace and paul teaches this quite often romans chapter 6 verses 1 and 5 says this there's two questions paul asks in romans chapter 6 as he's concentrating on grace and he's teaching the people about grace what shall we say then are we to continue in sin that grace may abound Verse 5, he asks a very similar question. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? You know what Paul's answer to both of those questions were? By no means. No way, man. Forget it. You're crazy. That is not what grace means. Grace doesn't give you permission to sin so you can experience more grace. If, you, if you're doing that, you don't even understand what the grace of God's all about. And so Paul is teaching this new concentration on, on grace over personal performance. You know, you're not under the law. You're under grace. You don't have to do all the religious rites anymore. You don't have to do all the right sacrifices anymore. You don't have to keep all these things that you've kept. You rely on God's grace. But that doesn't give you permission to do whatever you want to. And so grace is not permission giving. Dijit Bonhoeffer <clears throat> In 1937, coined a phrase that kind of references the idea. 
uh, uh, of when we use grace as this permission giving, that, that because of grace, we don't have to live up to any standards. We don't have to try. We don't have to repent. We don't have to, to uh, be baptized. We don't have to grow in our discipline. He called it cheap grace. It's a term he refer, uh, used to refer to that uh, practicing, preaching forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism, or church discipline, communion without confession, cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, and grace without Jesus. And so grace is not permission giving. We can't just say, hey, I'll do whatever I want to on Friday night, and I'll make sure I get on church on Sunday and get a little grace, and everything will be taken care of. doesn't work that way. The second bad news is, Grace does not cancel our consequences. That when we do sin, when we make mistakes, when we have a little oopsie, as some people like to call sin, actually, when we rebel against God and choose to do what's wrong, sometimes consequences come with that. And grace doesn't cancel those consequences. Let me give you a couple of examples. There's Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Very first sin, you may remember, right? They sinned against God. They rebelled against His commandment. The consequences of that were they were kicked out of the Garden. God was just as gracious, and I'm going to point out what I think was a very gracious act of that in a minute. But but He still kicked them out of the Garden. They still lived by the sweat of their brow. Things were still destroyed. The, the consequences still were enacted even though God was gracious. How about King David? After his love affair, we find him sitting in sackcloth and ashes, crying and begging to the Lord, praying that the baby will live. And it didn't. The consequences that God pronounced were the consequences that took place in David's life. How about the children of Israel? When they refused to trust the Lord and go in and take the promised land. And he said, all right, I'm done with you. You're going to wander around for 40 years until this generation dies. What happened? They wandered around for 40 years until that generation died. They had, they had not trusted the Lord. They had sinned against him and they received the consequences of those sins. Even though God was gracious. Or Zacchaeus. <laughs> Here's a good New Testament. You know, he comes down, he gets saved, he stands up and says, okay, well, if I'm going to receive your grace, that means I got to pay back everybody. And I assume it doesn't tell us, but he paid everybody back. All those, remember, he makes that promise and, and restitution for his sins was a consequence of what he needed to do with. In repentance, he had to make restitution and he, we assume, did that. But what I want us to know about this is that though grace doesn't consequence, uh, doesn't cancel our consequences, it is sufficient to deal with our consequences. Back to Adam and Eve right quick. Here they are naked, getting kicked out of the garden. And they need something. They need clothes. And in an act of what I consider grace, God himself made clothes for them. That, that he killed an animal, sacrificed something to cover their nakedness so, so that they could bear the consequences that were to come. 
And it appears through that story that, that God taught them other things. He, he, he taught them how to worship. He still communed with them. He was still their God. And he still came and talked with them. And we see their children later on knowing how to worship. And we assume they were taught by their parents how to worship with God. How to commune with God. And that although we're outside the garden, God didn't abandon them. He was still gracious. He was still their God. He was still with them. And he provided the things they needed outside the garden. They still endured the consequences but grace made it sufficient for them to be able to do that. David, yes, the child dies. And when he receives this answer from the Lord, he gets up, he cleans himself up, and he goes on about being the king. His, his family still is in shambles. He, he struggles as king, but he remains a king. He, he keeps on leading the kingdom and is still recognized as the greatest king ever. And one of the most gracious things that ever happens is that this man who was chosen by God, who, who, who sinned in such a horrific way, who, whose consequences were unimaginable, the death of their child, is still at the end of his life said to be a man after God's own heart. That God was gracious to him. And grace on top of grace, he later on establishes the kingdom of David, the throne of David, forever and ever in his descendant, Jesus Christ. That it was from this line that the Messiah would come and establish this throne. That is a gracious act, even though David dealt with the consequences of his sin. The poor children of Israel, they wander around for 40 years in a desert, every day tasting God's grace. Because he provided manna for them to eat for 40 years. He, he takes care of them. He provides. He leads them where they should go and when they should go. When it's time to get up and move. When it's time for them to have water through grace. He does miracles and brings water. He still remains gracious to them while they're wandering through the desert. Their grace is sufficient for them to deal with their consequences. And Zacchaeus. Yeah, he, he had this encounter with Jesus and uh, he jumps up and says, I'm going to repay, you know, tenfold. If anybody I've cheated, you know, I'm going to repay. I'm going to make things right. And, and this is what it says in Luke's gospel, the 19th chapter. This is what Jesus said. This is the grace Jesus brought to that moment. Jesus said to him, today, salvation has come. To this house. Yeah, there was consequences for Zacchaeus. He wasn't popular with his friends. He wasn't going to be popular with the Romans after he has his turn of fate. But his salvation was secure. And in that, I'm sure he lived in that grace for the rest of his life, enduring whatever came as a follower of Christ. And so grace may not cancel our consequences, but it is sufficient for us to live whatever life has for us. So grace doesn't give us permission and grace does not cancel the consequences of our sins. But there is good news to grace. It's still amazing and it is still the best thing out there because grace and faith. Now, if you're at Ephesians chapter one, if you've turned there, we'll look at verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. 
For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in the presence in his love. All right. It's going to be one of those days. Everybody stop where you're at. I turned the page too soon. Ephesians chapter 2. I'm sorry. It's all good. Thank goodness God is gracious. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1. We're talking about grace and faith. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, much like Zacchaeus. In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy, God being rich in giving people what they don't deserve, mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgresses, transgressions, made us alive together with Christ by grace. You have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And that's not of yourselves. It is not. It is the gift of God, not of the, a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in him. Verse eight, for by grace, you have been saved through faith. And that's not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not the result of works. It's no longer about personal performance. It is about the grace of God that we have faith in. Grace is so amazing. Grace is so un, uncomprehendable that the only way we can kind of get our heads wrapped around it is to believe in it. And that's really what makes it so hard to understand that grace is almost unbelievable. That when I'm at my worst, when I was dead in my trespasses, walking according to the course of this world and the prince of the power of the air, when I was walking by the way of the devil, the, the spirit that's now working in the sons of obedience, that I formerly lived in the lust of my own flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature a child of wrath. When that described me, God was rich in mercy. Rich in grace. And loved me. That's amazing. And how, how do we believe that? How do we understand that? It is by faith alone. It is grace by faith or through faith. I, we have to come to a place when we look at ourselves and we look at our lives, we look at our performance, no matter how good our performance is and no matter how bad our performance is, we have to at some point say, I believe in grace because anything less than 100% purity is not good enough. And we need grace to make up whatever percentage that is. Some of you might be 99% righteous. That's great. I'm more like, you know, 50, 50, 
on a good day. But I need grace to make up for whatever amount it is. And I have to say, I trust grace. I have faith in God's grace. Either God's going to save me because he said he would and he chose to, or he's not. And there's nothing I can do about it. My faith is in his grace. No matter how good I am, it won't be good enough. And I need grace to make up the difference. I believe I, that this is what I trust. You know, I hear people say, I believe I'm going to heaven. I hope I'm going to heaven. Sometimes I just had this conversation with someone this week. And it was like, well, sometimes I think I'm going to heaven and, and sometimes I don't. And I'm like, well, don't you want to know? And I'm like, yeah. She, like, this person said, yes, I want to know. How, how can I know? And I was like, you just got to trust God's grace. You got to believe he said he would do what he said he would do. That by grace he will save you if you will ask him. And I can't tell you anything more than believe that. But when we're pushed, when that person says, yeah, but how, but how, but how, we too often go to, well, okay, I, I can't tell you how to have faith. I can't tell you exactly how to put your faith in Christ. I can just tell you to do it. And so since I can't explain it to you, why don't you read the Bible? Why don't you start going to church? You know, we start putting things other, we start putting performance things out there instead of saying, trust grace that God loves you. Put all your faith, all your eggs in this basket, the basket of grace and not your personal performance. Because grace forgives. Now you can turn back to Ephesians chapter one now, what we were reading before. Blessed be the God of our Father, Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to obey the holy, blameless in his presence and love. He predestined us for adoption as the sons through Jesus Christ, according to his good pleasure and his will, to praise, to the praise of his glorious grace. And two of the G's put together, glorious grace, which he has freely given to us in his beloved one, in him, verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of trespasses according to the riches of his grace. He has lavished on us all wisdom and understanding. He has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ as the plan of the fullness of time to bring all things in heaven and earth together in Christ. Verse 7 again. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of trespasses according to the riches of his grace. The, the best news that when we put our faith in grace, we're putting our faith in forgiveness. God says, it's my grace that I forgive you. I give you what you don't deserve, my forgiveness. And I just want to remind you what forgiveness is. That, that forgiveness is the link, relinquishing of a justifiable right. Forgiveness does not say, oh, it's okay. Forgiveness says, I have a right to be upset with you, and I'm choosing not to be. The truth of the matter is that Christ, that God himself, as the righteous judge, could condemn every person that's ever lived 
to eternal separation from him. He could send us all to hell and he would be completely justifiable in doing it. Because as the Bible says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? So he could justifiably do that. It's his right. But grace and forgiveness is God saying, I have the right, but I relinquish my right. I give up my right and I forgive. This is a gracious act. Grace is God's choosing not to exercise his right. He gives us what we don't deserve. And he doesn't give us what we do deserve. Grace forgives. So let's ask this question. One other thing that grace is free. This is the greatest news of grace or this defines grace is that it's free said it is the gift of god the the free gift of god and i just want to warn you if you ever say anything like this you find if you find yourself struggling with this on those days you know i hope i've been good enough to go to heaven i i I hope i've done enough to go to heaven i've done my best i've been a good person I hope that's enough. If you struggle with those thoughts, that means you don't understand grace. Your struggle is not in your performance. Your struggle is in your acceptance of grace because grace is a free thing. It's not something you can earn. You can't be good enough. You can't do enough. You can't be just a good person. It's not based on personal performance. It's a free gift. It's not something we can earn. And if we find ourselves going through religious acts, religious duties, reading the Bible, attending church, hoping that somehow we're going to say, well, you know, I've got grace and I've put a good down payment on it or, or I've paid for it, then it means we're struggling with understanding, really accepting unconditional love, free grace, this unbelievable amazing thing you're right back to where i was i don't get understanding this and so i just have to believe it and so why does this matter how does this impact your life when we understand that god is gracious well if we do if god is gracious then i don't have to prove myself i don't have to spend time trying to do enough that the things i do are now acts of love and not performances of duty They're not trying to earn it. I can act and behave the same way, but the motivation is different. It is in response, not in trying to obtain. And so I don't have to prove myself. God's going to be gracious no matter what. How do we align our lives with God's grace? When we realize that God has been gracious to us and it, it forgives, it means we simply are gracious to other people. In the coming weeks, we're going to be going through another sermon series talking about growing in grace. And graciousness is is a struggle. Really being gracious to other people. Matthew 10, uh, verse 8 says this, Freely you have received, freely give. What did we receive freely from God? Grace, forgiveness, mercy. He's given that to us freely. Not because you attend church. That's not why you get it. He gives it to you. And he says, you've gotten it. Now go give it. 
Exercise mercy and grace with other people. Exercise mercy. Give people what they don't deserve and don't give them what they do deserve. Imagine exercising that in your life. God doesn't give me what I do deserve and he does give me what I don't deserve. So now I'm going to do the same to you. It's amazing. Forgive. There may be people in your life who you have a justifiable reason to be angry with, to be hurt by, to be mad with. Make a conscious decision not to exercise your justifiable right. Make a conscious decision not to be angry with them, not to hold out on them, not to withhold from them, not to give them what they deserve, but forgive them as you were forgiven. And be okay when people don't perform to your standards. When they don't act the way you want them to, love them anyway. Be gracious to them, merciful. You didn't do what I think you should do. You didn't do pretty much what I know you should do. You didn't do what you ought to do. And I'm okay with that. That's what God says to us. That's grace. Jason, you didn't do what you were supposed to do. It's a good thing I'm gracious. I trust in that grace. Because if that's not what God is, I got no hope. And the same kind of understanding God gives me, we are supposed freely given, freely give. Matthew 18, 21, 35. Should you not also have mercy on your fellow slave in the same way you, your master had mercy on you? It's a parable Jesus is teaching. I've forgiven you so much. Can't you forgive other people just a little bit? In the story of the unforgiving servant. So if we're going to line our lives up with God's grace, we have to be people of grace. So what happens when we miss it? When we, when we, what's a telltale sign of, oops, I'm missing out on grace a little bit. Well, that's when we start to become judgmental. Uh, and, and I'm just curious, can we sometimes admit we struggle with this? That, that we look at the world and people don't do what they should do. We're pretty sure what they should do. You know, they don't behave the way we want them to behave. They, they do all these things, and we just have a hard time approving of that. And we become judgmental. Uh, and we start to do things. We start to, we start to try to exert our influence, whatever influence we have over them, to try to make them do the things we think they should do. This is when we're becoming judgmental. We start to withhold goods from them. You know, something that they need, something that they want. And we're like, yeah, I got it. But, you know, you really, you're, you're going to squander this. You're not going to be a good steward with it. So I'm going to, I'm going to hold it back from you. You know, we, or, or, or maybe it's affection. We withhold our affection. You know, I just can't associate with you anymore because you're, you're not doing the things that you really should be doing. So, so I, I'm going to have to, you know, pull back from this relationship. I'm going to, you know, pull back from the praise that you give. I'm going to, you know, start to, instead of acceptance, we start to be angry or, or give disdain in place of that. Like, you know, I just really can't be around you. And so we withhold from them, trying to influence, hoping that, that they'll start to do the things that they're supposed to do. We're, we're exerting our judgmental power to try to make them behave. 
or we break relationships and hold back from relationships and not engage. We don't be like Jesus with Zacchaeus, right? The tax collector, that person that no one and everybody hated. And what does Jesus do? Did Jesus approve of that? I'm sure he didn't. But he went and had lunch with him. And it brought grace into the situation. And everything was changed at that. And so when we start to miss God's grace, we start becoming judgmental. And here's a little primer question for times to come. Something you can think about. What's the difference then between judging someone and discipling someone? Because the Bible tells us to make disciples. Teaching them all that I've commanded you. Remember that we're supposed to look out for one another. If you see a brother sinning, go to him and correct him. You know, there's a lot of scripture in there about us making some quote unquote judgment calls in the name of discipleship. What's the difference between judging someone then and discipling someone? Hmm. That's a good question. Think about it. We'll cover that in a couple weeks.